Okay, well, uh, welcome back. Uh, final night, and uh, I think we have four passages to look at, and then any questions or uh, returns to previous passages that we looked at, we can do that as well, okay? So um, we're going to start with uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this, uh, we're going to look specifically at verses 16 and 17, but this passage as a whole relates a lot to the future. And if you want to sort of learn the lingo, the category of theology that we refer to when we're talking about the end times is called eschatology. So E-S and then chat, C-H-A-T, O-L-O-G-Y. So eschatology. Yes, I think I might have missed a couple letters in there. I'll write it on the board for you. How's that? So... Okay, so there's <coughs> roughly 10 subsections to what's called systematic theology. Most of them are self-explanatory. Christology is about Christ. Th theology proper is about God. Bibliology is about the Bible. Demonology, angelology, and whatnot. This one is the word we use to refer to the end times. So if you hear me say that's eschatological, we're referring to something that relates to the future events that God is going to bring about in this world. So that's eschatology. Now, this passage, oftentimes we think of eschatology, we think, oh, the book of Daniel, we can go there and find some material for our eschatology, or we can go to Revelation, and that's the only two places we go to. But in fact, books like Matthew and First and uh, Second Thessalonians have quite a bit of eschatology in them as well, and there's uh, there's other books, but those ones are are notable books. So this passage we're looking at is an eschatological passage, and we're looking at verses sixteen and seventeen. But as I've taught you many many times, you always want to look at the broader context. That often helps to clarify ambiguity in verses of the Bible. You look at the context. You remember the old uh, statement that context is the king? Or another statement we often make is that the top three rules of interpreting your Bible are context, context, context. We're just throwing those out to kind of help people to lock down this basic idea that you read the verses around a passage, and oftentimes they clear, clear everything up. Most of the time they do. Not always, but most of the time. So we're, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to cut in at verse 13, and then we're going to spend a little more time on verses 16 and 17. He, he writes, uh, but we do not want you to be uninformed. <clears throat> That's helpful. He wants to tell us something that may otherwise be clouded with ignorance. Brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, the word asleep here is not literally people that are catching some Z's, but this is a reference to those who have already died. Sometimes in biblical theology, they talk about the death of a saint as sleep. Some people who believe in soul sleep, I believe last week we dealt with a passage about where we go and we die. Do we just kind of fall asleep and then wait till the end and wake up, or do we go right to heaven? 
I believe we go right to heaven based upon passages like uh, Philippians 1 and 2. So this is not to be taken as a proof text to suggest that when we die, we enter into a period of soul sleep. It's a euphemism for death. It's, it, it, it communicates less finality than the word death and has a, a ring of hope to it. So just like when you sleep in the morning, you wake up and everything's good. So that idea is meant to be communicated in passages that refer to the Christian's death as sleep. So uh, we don't want, he doesn't want us to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So there's a com- contrast, contrast going on here between those that die outside of hope in Christ and those that die with hope in Christ. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, and there's actually some debate among theologians as to what that word from the Lord meant. Uh, it Was it like something that God revealed through special revelation after his resurrection to the apostles? Or are they quoting something that Jesus said during his earthly ministry that maybe never found its way into the gospel? or at least the language of which never found its way into the gospel. Nevertheless, we should at least note that Paul is grounding this teaching in something that the Lord Jesus said, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those that have fallen asleep. So this sounds very much like what other passage in the Bible that we actually looked at, I think, last week. 1 Corinthians 15, very much like 1 Corinthians 15. And then here we have it. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we we have touched on this passage already, but just to kind of give it a little more uh, of a place within... um, biblical eschatology. I'm, I'm just going to give you like the, the Coles Notes version of uh, um, sort of the, the timeline that will um, sort of outlines for us the basic events of the future. So this particular one, this particular one is in relationship to what we often refer to as the rapture. Now, generally when we do a timeline of human history, we put a cross in the middle, and basically that, that's meant to sort of delineate between the Old Covenant and uh, the pre, pre-Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Okay? I mention this because too often people just think like from the beginning of the world it was the Old Covenant. Well, that didn't happen for a while. So under the New Covenant, then, we have the uh, cross, and then we have, we just use this little looped arrow to refer to the ascension of Christ. Then we have the what's often called the church age. Now, this does not mean that no Jewish people can ever get saved during this period of time. It just means that Jews and Gentiles alike who come to faith in God during this period are part of the church. 
and that there's no differentiation between the two. And then there, um, there will be a period of time, it would appear, in the future. And again, this is where people start to have differences of opinion, but I'm just going to share mine. Uh, in the future, there will be a period of time spanning seven years that is known as the Great Tribulation. Okay, so this is the Great Tribulation. And you can divide that down a little bit further into two, uh, three and a half year periods. And basically, the there's going to be a figure of some sort ruling the world who presents himself as Mr. Nice Guy. But he shows his true colors at the halfway mark. And he manifests great evil, the Antichrist. And those then that are coming to faith during that period of great tribulation will experience a lot of nasty stuff and persecution. Now, there's an event, and this is where there's differences of opinion. Some people believe that texts like this, referring to the second coming of Christ, this is the first coming, the second coming of Christ, that he will come prior to the seven-year period. Some people believe he will come at the halfway mark. Some people believe he will come at the end. There's actually some people that believe there may be multiple returns during this period of time. I think based upon my understanding of Daniel's 70th week prophecy and sort of comparing that with Revelation, that it's more likely he will come at the beginning of the tribulation period. And during that second coming, all who are, I'll just do a little, all who are in the grave and all who are living, that's a guy laying on his back in his grave, okay? <coughs> so both those that are dead and previously believed prior to their death and those who are believers in the present go with Christ to glory. And this is uh, uh, basically the, the, de the, dead, the dead in Christ are raised to life. The, uh, the, the people that are believers at the time will also go to be with Christ. Then the events of the Great Tribulation unfold, and it gets really bad. And so during this period of time, the church is non-existent coming into this, but some come to faith in Christ, notably the Jews. Okay, So this is how many of us would interpret, whether you take this particular number symbolically or literally, doesn't matter to me. It does refer, however, it would appear to the ethnic Jewish people. 12,000 times 12 tribes is 144,000. During the period of the tribulation, it would appear that many Jewish people will suddenly recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and come to faith, and they will form, in essence, the church on earth. And then at the end of that, of course, some of them will be killed, some of them will be alive. At the end of that, Christ comes back with these folks, which would include us, and there is a great battle. That battle is the battle of Armageddon. And the devil then, you can read about this in Revelation 20, and his minions, 
and the Antichrist and all those nasty folks are consigned to the abyss for a thousand-year period. And during this thousand-year period, which is known as the millennium, okay, the millennium, appropriately so, the blessings, many of the, the blessings that God promised that are physical in nature to the Jews that he describes as being eternal in nature, but which are currently somewhat on hold because of their rebellion against him, will be reinstated during this period of time. And there will be a period of relative peace. It's not going to be like 100% perfection, uh, but there will be a period of relative peace on earth during which God will fulfill his earthly promises to the Jewish people including the reestablishment of a Davidic throne in Israel and so forth. Then at the end of this thousand-year period, and there's a little bit of debate as to whether it's exactly a thousand years or it's just a metaphorical number for a lengthy period of time. You don't need to form a new denomination depending on your view of that, but this period of millennial peace, at the end of that, um, the devil will be released from the abyss and he and his minions will again wage war against God and his people. And there is a battle that will take place, which is called in scripture the battle of Gog and Magog. The reason for that is Gog and Magog were two ancient kingdoms. They were just despicable. They became stereotypical of evil. Much like today, someone like Pol Pot or Hitler would their names would never be used positively in a sentence. They are just so bad that they are stereotypes of absolute evil. So there will be this battle in the future, which is labeled as the Battle of Gog and Magog. Some people that are more literal believe it will actually take place in the area that Gog and Magog existed. It doesn't really matter to me. But there will be a final cataclysmic battle. And this is the period of time uh, once for all, where God will just like, that's it. Like all evil, all um, death, everything loses once for all. And during this battle then, um, this will then set the stage for the absolute destruction of uh, all created things. So the, the heavens and the earth will be burnt up. All evil consigned to uh, the lake of fire, uh, the, the damned uh, demons, Satan, and God will create for us the new heavens and the new earth. So the heavenly, uh, the eschatological vision for the Christian, which many Christians I don't think are aware of, is not that we will spend eternity in heaven. We often just sort of generically say we're going to go to heaven. But in actual fact, it's not true. We go to heaven now. We will be in heaven during the tribulation period. But the long-term end of the story, the final chapter, is that God will create a new heavens and new earth. We will be embodied creatures on a physical planet. And the way I like to sort of visualize it in my mind is it will be like Eden on steroids. It will be like a return to God's original ideal for humanity. We will actually be walking on physical ground. We're not going to be on some 
cloud strumming on a harp, uh, singing in a, a choir, but there would just be this beautiful, idyllic return to the Garden of Eden. Maybe the only difference is we won't be naked, we'll be wearing white robes. But that's the timeline, and where I would say, and, and that's based upon the study of a lot of different biblical texts and trying to piece them together and see how they best fit. So in this passage we're looking at, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, meaning the church, will be caught up with them in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. That would best fit in as a reference to the second coming, the second looped arrow. And this particular passage doesn't then go on to define everything else. You've got to sort of look at other passages of the Bible to um, understand all that. Okay. Now, if you were to ask me, just in reference to this timeline, like, okay, so I would be, what I, how I would describe myself, because I believe the church is going before the millennium, is that I'm a premillennialist. Because I also believe we're going before the tribulation, that means that I'm a pre-tribulational premillennialist, you see? So if someone says, I'm a mid-tribulational premillennialist, that means here. I'm a post-tribulational premillennialist, that means here. If someone says, I'm an amillennialist, that means that they see this mark to this mark as a non-literal thousand-year period. Period, And they just have a very simple timeline. millennium means no millennium, no literal millennium. We're just sort of in, in that now. And at one point, Christ is going to return. There's going to be a big battle. That's the end of it. Now, a post-millennialist believes, in line with an amillennialist, this is the basic timeline, but the difference between an amillennialist and a post-millennialist is that the post-millennialist actually believes that the church is going to increase its stature and power through all of human history. There may be ups and downs, but in the end, when there's the final battle, the world actually will more or less be Christianized and the kingdom of God will be fully manifested on earth. So it's a very optimistic eschatology. It was actually very popular during periods of time when the church was growing. And interestingly, because people often create their theology out of pragmatism and what they see in the news more than a good study of the Bible, post-millennialism sort of always comes out of the closet when Things are going well. The church is growing. Uh, when, when England was sort of ruling the world and there was, there were a cr- kind of a Christian nation, post-millennialism was pretty, pretty popular. Uh, when things begin to get real bad, uh, people sort of start to maybe drift into the amillennial camp or some other camp, premillennial camp. But that's probably not the best. Uh, watching the news is probably not the best way to determine your eschatology. Probably better just to study out the scripture and try to arrive at some sort of a a sensible conclusion. The one thing that all evangelical people must agree to in order to be considered evangelical in this timeline is what? Exactly, the second coming. 
whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or just at the end of a general millennial period, that is actually a matter of orthodoxy. So you, you cannot consider yourself an orthodox biblical Christian. I'm, I'm using it with a small o, not reference to the orthodox church, but someone who actually believes in the truth of Scripture. If you deny the second coming, like the whole house of cards comes down, because what's the point of this all then, right? So second coming is do-or-die doctrine, and not that the rest of this isn't important, but um, a lot of the uh, background to whether you arrive at the premillennial camp or the amillennial camp actually boils down to how you read Scripture. So I'm going to, in generalities, okay, there's, there's a lot of detail to this and sophistication, but generally speaking, the more literal you tend to read Scripture, or maybe a better word is normal, because not not everything is literal, but it's if you read a metaphor as a metaphor, you're still reading it normally, but you're not actually literal. So if you have more of a literal, normal, or what we call a historical, grammatical way of reading the Bible, you tend to land on the timeline that I've presented here. And if you tend to allegorize, again, speaking in generalities, if you tend to be more comfortable allegorizing things, it's a little easier to drift into like an amillennial uh, camp because they tend to spiritualize. So under amillennialism, for instance, there's no future for Israel. Like Israel is one choice, become part of the church or you're done. So an amillennialist would have zero interest in what's going on in Israel from an eschatological perspective or the return of people, the people to the land of Israel or any of that, that would just be, no, everybody comes into the church, that's all there is to it, right? So um, most people uh, that believe in uh, some sort of a future resurrection of the Israeli state or some sort of a restored Jerusalem or restored Davidic kingdom, knowingly or unknowingly are minimally pre-millennialists and probably are pre-tribulationalists as well. Yeah, so that's maybe a little more than you expected. But do you have any questions about this? No. Just uh, your heads are just spinning right now. Okay. Well. Part of me. Where are we? <laughs> where, where are we? What? Ah, uh, we're somewhere in here. <laughs> so. <laughs> no. Don't read the news into the Bible. Yeah. Everybody, uh, you know, when Russia was a superpower and the U.S. was a superpower, you know, the great bear of the north was Russia. And, you know, then, then Russia sort of took a nosedive and suddenly people are scrambling to try to fill in the blank. I just don't do that. I don't, I don't try to overinterpret. I'm much more interested in the impressions that I'm left with when I read the text and the general truths than trying to pinpoint the precise person or present-day event that ties to a specific situation. But I can tell you a lot of people are very fascinated with that and spend a whole lot of time studying it. And it, I don't know, it's, they just thrive on it. And, um, you know, it, it can be intellectually stimulating, but it can also be a grand old waste of time. 
right? But I'm just going to make three more comments here with regard to this text. The reason why I think this is an end times text is because there's a trumpet mentioned. And if you cross-reference Matthew 24, 31, a trumpet is tied to the end times. There's a resurrection mentioned. And John 11:25. there's an end time resurrection mentioned. There's a gathering of the elect also mentioned in Matthew 24, 31, which is an eschatological passage, and that's mentioned here too. So I think it's I think it's pretty pretty locked down that this is a this is an eschatological event that is being referred to here. So if you were to ask me to grade this, I would say 100% convinced that this is future. Fairly sure I know roughly where it lands, but I'm not going to die for it. So that's that's where we're at. By the way, in this church, uh, we would sort of assume and expect minimally that people would be premillennialists and allow for some greater flexibility on the tribulational issue. But I, I personally don't know, wouldn't know of anybody in this church that would consider themselves an amillennialist or postmillennialist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Although, okay, that's true. That there's a little. If we're right, it's a huge advantage for everybody. But um, <laughs> you know, we 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 shouldn't uh, we we shouldn't forge our beliefs just based upon what we hope would happen. Because actually, if I were to have what I would hope for, I would want to be a postmillennialist, because I would want to think that the whole world, through our efforts, will one day. Come to Christ prior to the second coming, and therefore, at the time of the second coming, there will be very, very few people going to hell. That the kingdom of God will descend upon earth in its fullness, and the world will be Christianized in the biblical sense of the word. But I'm just not sure that's how the Bible presents things. All right, so now we're going to go over to 1 Timothy 2. And we're going to look at verses 12 and uh, 14. This whole thing is about uh, men and women and their conduct within the church. This, Looking back at the context, this broader passage is about men and women and their conduct in the church. So there's some stuff about um, lifting holy hands in prayer and you know not coming to church all... Uh, you know, dressed up to the point that you're drawing attention to yourself and these kinds of things. And in fact, the reference to gold, pearls, and costly jewelry, that we actually already talked about that, but there were ways you could identify people's status in the Roman world based on what they wore. And so Paul's basically saying, when you come to church, dress in a way that you just look like everybody else. So we don't, it's probably less of a command intended to actually dictate a dress code, and it's more of a command speaking into the culture that would have, would have attached a certain dress code to a certain economic or social uh, strata. So by, by not identifying your social strata, you 
participated more fully in a body of Christ where equality, whether slave or free, Jew or Gentile, was stressed. I think this is an important principle because some churches get so hung up on the dress code, they sort of create their own other ways of identifying who has money and who doesn't while creating dress codes that are more true to the specificity of the text. And I think maybe Don commented on this several weeks ago um, when we had the conversation on head coverings that, I mean, I grew up in a church like that too, where the hats got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and the pins got bigger, bigger, and you sort of knew who the wealthy people were even though they were wearing the hats. Or I use the example of Muslim women today. Um, If you read the Hadiths, which are the extra Quranic texts from which the head coverings come, not from the Quran itself, the purpose of the head coverings are for modesty and so that men won't look. So they're to hide certain features or to look less attractive sexually than you might otherwise be if you weren't wearing one. But I commented on the fact that even many modern Muslims have evidently forgotten that because you see Muslim women walking around with you know, everything Western on from the shoulders down, tight pants, tight tops, and multicolored uh, head coverings with jewels and sequins and all. I'm pretty sure that th- that is contrary to the intention of them. But just like Christianity can be guilty of, we, we kind of get into the dress code and then we add to it. So you even look at the Roman church um, in the Middle Ages, you have the clergy wearing black robes because they were studying in cold buildings and many of them were clerics. They were like uh, teachers and professors. And as the centuries roll by, you start to add a little band here, a little mark here, a little braid here, a little... and you know, now you see the Pope and the Cardinals walking around with some pretty fancy duds on. So things have kind of moved from communicating austerity and scholarliness to something very fanciful like the big hats and the whole nine yards, right? So we just, that's why I'm not, that's why I'm more interested in print the principle behind the, the, the rule than the specificity of the rule itself. Because I think it's the intention that's, God is trying to communicate to us the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law in matters like this. So then let's look at verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. <coughs> so, specifically, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. So this text has been debated because just as you look at the head covering text and you say, okay, we're trying to guard the principle but not the specificity of it. Many people have looked at this and said, well, the, pr- the purpose of it is to maintain like order between men and women, but the specificity of a woman not teaching in the church is also cultural. So in other words, some would read this text and say, <clears throat> okay, well, I still believe that there's a difference between men and women, but in that culture, they would say women were less learned or... Um, a woman speaking at a church would communicate a certain arrogance. That's not the same in our culture. So there's ways of maybe remaining true to the principle of the text, but also setting aside the specific application of the text. 
The problem with that interpretation is that the, there's a verse that comes after this that sort of locks it down as being a teaching that has nothing to do with the specifics of your culture. Th he actually, in this context, draws from a transcultural, what I would call a transcultural principle, and grounds this rule for the churches in creation itself, creation order itself. So what I want to do is I want to try, try to help us to understand what's being said here, and then I want to make some pastoral comments on um, what this might look like in the church, and then we'll need to probably address some cultural pushback on this passage. So look at verse 13, for, now grammatically the word for sort of has a little bit of slipperiness to it, but when you're reading this in this context, what does the word for essentially mean? How, if you had to take the word for out and find another English word to insert, okay, because, because of, right? Something like that. So it's, it's kind of like a purpose statement. It's the background. So I don't, I don't permit a woman to teach uh, or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Now this is in reference to the gathered community of believers. And then he says, uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now you've read Genesis, and Adam is not presented in Genesis as being more smart. He's not presented as being, uh, really there's no virtues even attached to Adam's conduct in Genesis 1 to 3. He's just Adam. Eve, you could say, is presented with somewhat of a negative flair because she succumbs to the temptation of the devil. But the biblical text lays the weight of the sin upon Adam, who it says was with her. So it actually presents him in a passive light. So he still gets the blame. You could read Romans 5 for that. So he, he has the negative implied in that he's passive in spiritual leadership in the text. <clears throat> but then he goes on to say, For Adam was formed first, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And then this very strange statement at first read, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. So this, would, this obviously would, might be of concern to barren, the barren woman, right? So let's look at the first section. There's actually two issues here we've got to talk about, the childbearing section, and then we've got to look at the, <coughs> the, um, the part pertaining to teaching. <coughs> now, Exceptions to a rule do not nullify a rule. They actually, they actually clarify a rule. And um, I've had people say, well, Deborah was a prophetess. So she was ruling Israel. I'm like, yeah, that's in Judges. Samuel was also ruling Israel, and he was an idiot. Okay? Like most of the judges are idiots. They're not presented with a lot of virtue. The, the, po the point of judges is what? Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Like Judges is not the place to go to find out how things are supposed to work. Judges is a place to go when everything's 
mixed up. And yes, it's time when there are times in the text when God uses very, very like over the top flawed people to accomplish certain things on His behalf. The fact that everything was mixed up makes sense that there were some female judges during that period of time. It doesn't mean that that's the way it should be. That doesn't form a precedent for us. For us. But even if it did, Israel's not the church, and the church ain't Israel. So thirdly, you can't take an obscure text and allow it to blot out a very didactic, crystal clear, categorical text like the one we just read. It doesn't require studying the grammar. doesn't require a lot of fancy exegesis. It's, this text just kind of stands on its own two feet in terms of how it's worded. So this is what I want to suggest to you. Um, I don't know the best way to illustrate this, but I'll just do a bunch of circles, I guess. So this is Canadian culture 2016. And at this same point in time, there is a pick a country. Czech. Okay, so Czech Republic culture... 2016. And how about another one? Okay, Australia culture, 2016. Pick another one. Okay, Japan culture, 2016. Now we could take this <clears throat> and draw, just keep adding to it. We could have Niger culture, 1971. We could have uh, Chinese culture, 1961, we could have, <clears throat> you know, the, the, we'll go way back, the Assyrian culture, 750 BC, right? So we can just keep adding to this. There's lots of cultures and there's lots of periods of time throughout history. You could fill this whole board with bubbles, just pack it full of bubbles, outlining all the different cultures of our world and the different periods of time within which they existed. And culture, I mean, has everything to do with role relationships to, to perspectives on money and perspectives on food and social etiquette and language and dress codes and uh, work ethics and vacation time and leisure time and just on. There's just so much to it. So when you're reading this text, of course, we have Greco, a Greco. Roman era culture, circa 60 AD. And as you're reading this text, as with many other texts, you're always asking yourself the question when it comes to like the specific application of certain truths. Like, is this, is there something in the text that is, is meant to be applied to that culture or is it, is the text telling me something that tr is transcultural? And it can be difficult to know which way to go. However, all of these cultures flow from the original culture. Okay? The most original culture that we could possibly identify is the Garden of Eden. 
Garden of Eden, however long ago it was, 8,000 years or whatever. So this is like the culture, the culture. It's the culture before cultures. And the reason why the text we're looking at today doesn't require us to ask the question, well, is it just like Greco-Roman era culture? Is it something going on back then? It's because the basis of this teaching, while it was given during this period of time, he just jumps over all cultures and he grounds it in the creation order itself. And that is why um, in churches like ours, we continue to feel comfortable teaching that women are not permitted to teach men without feeling, without allowing ourselves, uh, well, allowing is probably not the best word because people could still do it, but without apology, without saying, oh, this is so old-fashioned. It's not about being old-fashioned or new-fashioned. It's transcultural. It like hops, skips, and jumps over all cultures and just grounds the truth in creation order itself. So therefore, we call this a transcultural truth, not a cultural truth. Again, there's some passages of the Bible that it's hard to know whether they're culturally specific or transcultural. And good, well-meaning Christians disagree on it. But this one just seems so cut and dry. For, because, as Sam suggested, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he just grounds it in creation order itself and locks it down as a truth that all obedient churches should abide by, in my view, for all of time. No matter what little balloon you find yourself in, this one is transcultural. So let's then think about a couple of other things. Uh, <clears throat> there's a reaction to this. The reaction is rarely based in differences of opinion on exegesis. People automatically, okay, this is what the text says, but, and they start to talk about cultural considerations. And the big question that comes to the forefront is, well, does that mean women are like somehow incompetent? And some would suggest, I guess, oh yeah, they are, because she was deceived first. There's something more naive or ignorant about a woman. Um, problem with that is that uh, we have some women in the Bible that are serving as they should have been serving that are presented as people who had some gifts in teaching, uh, in communication. Think of the dramatic influence that Timothy's mother and grandmother had uh, on him. So we can just go right to the guy who's receiving this. And in the opening chapter of this text, um, he talks about Timothy being his true child in the faith. And uh, is it here or is it in sec uh, Second Timothy? Maybe it's in Second Timothy. He just sort of looks back and he he um, speaks very fondly of the influence that um, I'm not finding it here, but it is in the text. One verse five. Okay. In second. Okay. <clears throat> so he speaks very fondly of the influence that his grandmother Lois and his grandmother Eunice had on him. Now, he doesn't specifically speak of teaching, but he talks about them, their faith. Somehow their faith was transmitted to Timothy. Presumably, there was some communication of some sort going on there, at least when he was a child or a young man. 
Um, we don't believe that women don't have the gift of teaching. We don't believe that the Bible tells us that women can't teach children. We don't believe the Bible teaches that women can't teach women. In fact, Timothy's encouraged to allow the older women to teach the younger women. There's just one little slice of ministry that God excludes women from, and that is teaching men in the church. It doesn't say they can't teach biology in the high school, political science at the university, teaching men in the church. Now, this does not mean that all men are gifted teachers. Because we would say maybe most men don't have the gift of teaching. They have some spiritual gift if they're a believer. But even among males in the church, not everybody has the exact same mix of spiritual gifts. Some have the gift of teaching, some don't. So in that respect, it's not really even pitting men against women because not all men teach in the church. But the Bible does forbid women from teaching men in the church. So <coughs> uh, applying this, um, we don't have women preach on Sundays. We don't have women teach Bible studies in their life groups uh, if there's men and women present. We don't have, um, you know, I don't believe, although seminaries commonly violate this, I don't believe that women should be teaching the theological courses or biblical courses in seminaries. Um, are they going to go to hell for it if they do? No. Um, nor would I be so strict on this that if there wasn't a church, like let's say a, a, a female goes into a country as the first missionary to set her feet on the ground, go ahead and teach and preach men to men because there's no church yet. But once the church is established, within a reasonable period of time, you would expect for her to pass the teaching responsibilities off to the men that are present in that church that have been gifted by God to function in that way. And think about it. Teaching is so much tied to authority that, I mean, teaching in, in its essence implies authority. I know we live in a culture where we like to brush away the term teaching and replace it with stupid words like, I'm just a facilitator. That's actually a, more of a worldview thing than a pedagogical thing. It's, it's, it's just symptomatic of society's reaction to authority. So we sort of, we like democracy. So you're not my teacher, you're just my facilitator. Okay? I've never facilitated a Bible study in my life. I teach or I don't teach. I don't facilitate anything. I teach the Bible or I don't teach the Bible. I might facilitate conversation and dialogue, but I'm, I'm not going to walk into a life group or walk up at church on Sunday morning or walk into this class and just facilitate a pooling of ignorance, which is generally what happens if there is no teacher. Um, we teach through the text of Scripture. So this is not about women are worse than men or guys are better. They're, they're, we, we, know, we just know, we know experientially that's not true. Everybody's made in the image of God. It's one way alongside male leadership in the marriage that God tries to guard gender relationships and spiritual authority and push men out of their passivity 
which Adam was guilty of, and that's why we're here today in a fallen world, into a position of taking responsibility and authority over um, the women in the church. Yeah, so the question is, what do I think about Adam being the first sinner? Well, because he was the head of the relationship, in a sense, he was. There, there's radical unity between a husband and wife, and between certainly between Adam and Eve and the pre-fallen world. And while on a certain technical level, sh- you might say she is guilty of the first active sin Adam was sinning at the same time by being passive by allowing disobedience to enter into the world and so that's why the Bible says in Romans just as sin entered the world through one man Adam doesn't say Eve there so death comes to all men because all have sinned so in that sense as her federal head as the head of the relationship, he is, in a sense, guilty of the first sin or transgression. Yeah. Uh, in this room, I don't know, I haven't really counted it up, but let's just say for the sake of conversation, we have an equal, equal split between men and women. Just like we shouldn't look at our eschatology and say, oh, I'm going to choose this view because this is what's going on right now in the United States or Russia. That's a pragmatic approach to theology. That's not a biblical approach. It's not allowing your beliefs to rise out of the text. It's allowing culture to be imposed upon the text. So in the same way, we must allow our churches to be informed by the text rather than saying, okay, if we went around this room, we could identify women in this room that have the gift of teaching and men that do not. And therefore, a lot of people's, you know, their minds start to spin. They're like, well, well, this doesn't make sense because let's say a a woman sitting here today has the gift of teaching. Uh, Like if I was in a class with this guy over there, like why, it would make more sense for me to be the teacher because I have that gift. I get that. I get that. But fortunately, we live our lives out in a little broader community here. And again, it's not about it's not about who's better at it. That's not the point. Just like in in Scripture, when it talks about obeying government, okay, many of you uh, would be a better prime minister than the current one. That's not the point. Or let's say a police officer pulls you over because you're speeding. Um, or thinks you're speeding. Or let's just say, let's just simplify it. You just walk into a room and there's a Windsor police officer. Well, theoretically, you might actually be a better police officer than that person. That's not the point. An 18-year-old kid might be smarter than his dad. But he's not like, well, you know what, maybe I should take the role of the dad. You can be my kid for a while because I'm smarter than you. That's not the point. It's not about better than, worse than. It's about lines of authority. That's what God guards. So, you know, unless, unless you feel comfortable usurping other forms of authority in society because you may be more capable than people that are 
holding those rules. And I don't think anybody here would think that. Like I don't have to listen to a cop because I'm actually a better would be a better cop, or I don't have to listen to the prime minister because I'd be a better prime minister, or I don't have to listen to the mayor because I'd be a better mayor. You're not. You're not a cop. You're not a prime minister. You have to respect their position of authority given to them by God. Unless, of course, what they're telling you to do is contrary to God's law. And in the same way, in the church, it's not about who's better at it. That's not the point. I'm just driving. I'm saying the same thing about eight times to drive it home, if you haven't noticed yet. It's not about you being more capable. That's not the point. It's about God's design for authority within the church. Okay? So the wise man or the wise woman encourages and fosters a culture within their church where people feel not uneasy, but comfortable exercising their gifts using this model. Okay? Uh, you know, for those of you that are women, it's a whole lot easier for male teachers to teach in the church if they know that you are supportive of that. Otherwise, it just always feels weird and awkward. Uh, likewise, it's a whole lot easier for a husband to lead in his family if he knows his wife is going to encourage him in that. See? And vice versa. It's easier for me to parent my children if they know, if I know they respect my authority rather than just having to tell them all the time, I'm your dad, I'm your dad, that's why you have to do it. That's just really tiring. So um, let's look at the, just the second part of this. And this is where... Uh, I'm a little more unsure as to what the text means, but I'm going to give you two options, and then I'm going to sort of weigh them out for you as to which one I think is more sensible. So I'm going to take you back to Genesis 3. <clears throat> this is just to kind of set, set us up for this. Genesis 3. So we're in the curse passage. And the reason I'm taking it in Genesis 3 is because... In this passage already, Paul has referenced Genesis 3. So you just kind of read a little further down Genesis 3. <coughs> and it says in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So there's some reference to childbearing in reference to the consequences of sin. But if you go back up a little bit, and God is speaking to the serpent, there's... Another reference to a child or children in verse 15, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then this very interesting statement, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I mean, offspring could be one, but normally we would understand that as plural, the offspring that will come from the serpent, the offspring that will come from the woman, meaning there'd be some sort of a clash between the offspring of the serpent and humans. And many people have suggested this is very literal. That's why most people don't really like snakes. I mean, some people are terrified of them. Other people don't mind owning them. But there's... if. All, all animals, I don't want to scare you if you don't like snakes, but of all animals on earth, let's just be honest, probably the one that people like the least is the snake. 
And so there, it might be that that instinct, we would call it, comes as an effect of the fall. But there's also, it would it seem, some sort of additional layering of meaning here in the text. Um, like something prophetic, something of a more spiritual nature. And this, therefore, because this is what Christ did, is commonly understood to be a messianic text as well. So there's the literal, but then on top of that, there's a secondary fulfillment of this, and that the he would be a reference to the Messiah, who, it says, he bruises your head and uh, you shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's some sort of a pending conflict prophesied in the text between the offspring, the he, the singular offspring of the woman, and the singular offspring of the serpent. And of course, we know in the Gospels and Revelation, the devil is called the great serpent. Jesus conquers him on the cross. He strikes Christ in the temptation. You could say he strikes him on the cross. But ultimately, Jesus triumphs. So there's some sort of a prophetic thing here. So when we go back to our text in um, chapter 2, verse 15, when it says she will be saved through childbearing, it may very simply be a messianic text that um, as you return, so notice continue to faith, love, holiness, self-control, as you return to God's ideals, obedience to God, that there's a salvation that will come from her body in the form of the Messiah. So it may be that this is intended by Paul to echo the words of Genesis 3, 15, in the mind of a listener, and therefore has a spiritual implication to it. And I think that's a valid potential interpretation of the text. I think equally valid is that what Paul might be saying here, and I'll, I'll give you the summary statement first and then explain it, is that instead of usurping authority or mixing up the roles, when a woman functions in the way that she should function, then she will be saved in that sense. So in order to, now just hear me really clearly here because I want to use precise language. In order to typify femininity, he points to the one thing, the one unambiguous thing that differentiates a man from a woman. It's not hair color. It's not how pretty or handsome you are. It's not height because those things could vary. Right, based on culture and time. And, but the, the one thing that unambiguously differentiates a male from a female is the ability to bear children. I mean, that, that's the, the, the it's, not, it's, it's, it's just men don't have kids as women have kids, right? So it may be that he, because all humanity understands that, that he takes that one aspect of uh, women which differentiates them from men. And without meaning to go so far as to say, no, you've got to have kids to get saved, he uses that aspect of the female makeup to typify, typify uh, 
that if a woman functions in the way that God has designed her, then she will be saved, um, not as an equation, you have kids, you get saved, or you function as a you stay in the place that a woman should stay, and you'll literally be saved. This is not some sort of a works-oriented thing, but just calling people back to sort of God's original creative intent. Now, that's a little more convoluted maybe to understand, but I think it's, if I were to weigh those two interpretive options, I would personally weigh them 50-50. I think there's just as much of a chance that the first might be true as the second. Now, there, there may be other ways of reading that, but that's kind of how I have typically approached the text. Don? Yeah, good. So, I mean, that that could sort of, in a sense, be used to lend weight to the first view of the text. Because it did happen that way. Both both of the statements I made are true. I mean, both of them are true. But in terms of how uh, you know Paul understands this, yeah, I mean, he he may be. I guess the first interpretation, which is more spiritual, sort of has like a broader appeal to it. The second one is maybe slightly more easy to tie to the overall teaching of the text, which deals with maleness and femaleness and the differences between the two. So that's why I feel comfortable sort of suggesting both as valid options. And not, again, even if this, like if this text wasn't here, just, just was gone, both of the interpretations that I've suggested are still rooted in the broader teachings of the Bible. So they, they don't contradict Scripture. Okay. Does it make sense? Like, do you guys, any clarifying questions? Okay. That's it? Nobody's going to debate me or anything? It's no fun. Okay. Well, it must have been convincing then. Okay. Um, let's take a break. And then we'll come to James 1 about temptation. Okay, we'll come back together. And um, the next passage, the next passage we're going to look at is um, James chapter 1, verse 13. So uh, this, this uh, passage is submitted, I suspect, because people are often ask the question, like, I know I sin, but what is the source of sin? Like, where, where does it come from? Um, some people might even ask, why does God allow it? When I'm tempted, like, is it God sort of trying to teach me something? Or what's, what's the point of it all? So in James 1.13, it says, Let no one say, in answer to the question that people may be asking, does God tempt me? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And then four, because he's rooting it in something about God that we're now introduced to. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, you might automatically think, okay, well, I can remember one situation in the Bible where Jesus was tempted. At least we call it the temptation of Jesus. 
So is this like a contradiction in Scripture? I mean, wasn't Jesus tempted? So we got to answer that question. But um, if you look at the text again, there's a couple things that are communicated to us in very clear, unambiguous language. The first is that God doesn't tempt people. It's actually stated twice, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And then in, said another way, he himself tempts no one. When, this sounds like pretty emphatic language to me, pretty clear language. So enticement to sin, then, we're, we learn from this text, does not come from God. Secondly, uh, we also learn from this that God himself cannot be tempted by evil. But again, we know because we read the Gospels that Satan tried tempting Jesus. Now, he did fail, but he still tried tempting him. We call it the temptation of Christ. Isn't there a musical called The Last Temptation? So what do we do with this? So obviously, he was either partially unaware of who Jesus really was, or, this is the devil I mean, or foolishly thought he could pull one over on God. You'd almost think the devil would be aware that Jesus wouldn't succumb to temptation, otherwise why would he bother? Um, ultimately, he failed. And why did he fail? Because Jesus cannot fail. Because Jesus is God. So I'm going to take you back to a diagram that I'm pretty sure it was in this course that I introduce you to that helps us to understand something about Jesus. And this is just a visual that helps us to maybe pull together different scriptural concepts that we have about Jesus Christ. So when we think of Jesus Christ, we think of him as having two natures, the human nature and the divine nature. They're indivisible, but they're united as one. So this is why we say that Jesus is not 50-50. It's not like half God, half man. But rather that he is 100% God and 100% man. But um, in Scripture we see Jesus operating at times. This is a maybe a bit of a inadequate word, but we're limited in our language. So at times we see Jesus operating out of his divinity. So examples of that would, would be when he you know, seems to have a knowledge of what people are thinking. Um, you know, he meets a woman at the well. I know you had five husbands. You know, he seems to have this knowledge that, that goes beyond discernment or just reading people really well. I mean, he gets into some very specifics. And um, we could just kind of work through the Gospels lots of times when Jesus does something that regular humans don't do. But there are also times when Jesus is operating out of his humanity. So many of the sayings of Jesus on the cross would be reflective of that. Why have you forsaken me? Like he, there's this, he's very human. He has the emotions. There's that sense of uh, pain and 
emotional upset. And so he's expressing himself or operating out of his humanity. So that's a construct that uh, it's been around for a long, long time that kind of helps us to understand why at times Jesus almost seems like real godlike and other times real human because he's both. But sometimes he gives expression to greater aspects of his humanity, other times his deity. So this illustration is helpful because when we think of temptation toward Christ, we can say the temptation is being aimed at his humanity, but it's not being aimed at his deity. And so that allows us then to square up this idea that God cannot be tempted. In essence, God cannot be tempted. God cannot be tempted in the sense that God cannot sin. Like it's like a, a, you know, a, a bullet bouncing off of a bulletproof windshield. It's, it, it, the bullet might have strength, but it, what it's hitting is designed to withstand it. It cannot enter the bulletproof windshield. So in that sense, the character of God is immune to temptation because the character of God is such that it cannot sin. Some people say God can do anything he wants. Well, in a certain sense, that's true. But in a certain sense, it's not technically true. Because God cannot do anything that his deity does not permit him to do. God cannot sin. God cannot be tempted. God can't wake up one day and say, I'm going to choose to not exist anymore. God's character is so perfect and pure and holy that God is bound to act out of his character. But just as Christ acts sometimes out of his added humanity, he didn't give up deity, he took on humanity, according to Philippians chapter 2. So in his humanity, he can experience temptation. And so that's how we can reconcile these passages of Scripture by... Um, that at first glance seem to perhaps contradict something that we read about in the gospel. So why did the devil fail? He failed because Jesus' deity ensured that his humanity could not fail. There's nothing in God's character, no depravity whatsoever, that leaves even a, a, a millimeter's worth of space for sin to get in. God's character is immune to evil and to... Uh, all sorts of sin. Now, thinking of just the broader teaching of the text, this is more of like a just an interesting theological aspect to it. But the way the text is supposed to be used, of course, is to force the recipient to realize that uh, you are actually responsible for how you react to temptation. Whether the temptation comes from just the general influences of living in a broken world, being in a relationship or a series of relationships with people who are not yet fully glorified and therefore perfect, or whether it's a direct attack from the devil or one of his demons, you can't blame it on God. You have to take responsibility for yourself. So rather than blaming God or blaming the devil or blaming body chemistry or blaming your upbringing or blaming society, you need to take personal responsibility. I don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's unhelpful not to analyze the influences that may um, ha- be factored into why certain sins may be more tempting for me than they are for you or vice versa. 
I, I don't think it's wrong to think about uh, your family of origin or the people you associate with or the I had a friend many years ago that said to me, you know, I'm in I'm in law enforcement and in my job I'm exposed to foul language so much that I I just find it really tempting. Like I often just kinda let it go. And he he recognized he wasn't making excuses, like he was owning up to his own sin, but he also recognized that his friends at work were influencing him. Maybe if he was in a different work environment, it would be less of a temptation because he wasn't hearing it all the time. So there's nothing wrong with understanding that the people we hang around with are going to influence us. I mean, the proverb says, he who associates with wise men will be wise. So likewise, he who associates with fools will be foolish. Um, So there's nothing wrong with thinking about your family of origin, maybe how your parents' attitudes affected you or... Uh, how your the dynamics if you're a married person of your marriage affects you or you know how your physical health affects I'm not suggesting these are like inappropriate things to think about but they can never become uh excuses for sin we need to take responsibility for our sin instead of trying to foist it upon someone else and the greatest blasphemy of all is to foist it upon god who cannot sin and therefore does not tempt. Now, while this passage, uh, the, only, the only verse that was submitted was uh, verse 16, I think it is helpful to look at uh, verses 14 and 15 as well for the purposes of application. Um, So verses 14 and 15, James 1 says, um, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when des- then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a little bit of a birth analogy going on there. But I, I think it's uh, helpful to understand the downward staircase. Some people call it a downward spiral. I like the staircase one better, but the downward spiral of sin. And if you look at this text, it actually gives you like a three-step downward process. So we have evil desire, and then sin, and then the end result is death, right? Now, uh, in this context, death probably has a dual reference to it. it. To remind us that the ultimate consequence of sin for the unrepentant is death, physical separation from God. But because we can sin many times, not literally die, there's also just the death-like godless state that we find ourselves in when we do sin. There's just a, an emptiness and a lack of fulfillment. So there's more like kind of, you can sort of look at this death step as almost like the at the end of every sin, that's where you are. You're not literally dead, but it kind of feels like, yeah, like something's just not right. 
But to understand the three-step process is important when we succumb to temptation. And every sin, we're taught in this text, has an antecedent. And that is something inside of you, a desire. And this is why we preach, you know, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Um, watch your attitudes. N- nurture the fruits of the Spirit. They're like inter- Many of them are internal virtues that displace evil desires. They don't just replace them, they actually displace them. They like, force them out of our lives. Allowing the Spirit to fill us forces out those evil desires. So when we um, preach and teach and counsel people, even even our children, it's always helpful, I think, to uh, move beyond sort of a don't do this, don't do that kind of preaching, which is focusing on the actual expression and help people to understand there's, there's, it might be very momentary, but there's something that actually takes place just before the sin inside of your heart and mind. And if you can deal r- relentlessly with those attitudes or those lies or uh, the absence of truth, we call that ignorance, then you are going to be much better equipped to overcome temptation uh, when it erupts. So maybe we could just illustrate this in a couple of different ways. And we'll use like uh, some classical sins to illustrate the point. Like some you know, top ten ones. Let's go with uh, murder and lying. And we don't need to lock all of this down in terms of all the desires behind it. But murder and desires. We'd say, you know, don't murder people, don't lie. Hey, that's a sin. But what would be possibly an evil desire behind murder or that comes before one actually commits murder that you would be, do well to be aware of in order to avoid the actual act of murder? Okay. Anger would be one of them, of course. Hatred. Okay. Pride. Jealousy. Okay, you see? So, I mean, these in and of themselves are attitudinal sins. But these, okay, these might serve a desire to be wanted or recognized or right, whatever it might be. Maybe it's different depending on the person and the circumstance. So these these desires, sort of these antecedents to that, just be, being aware of those and not allowing those in your life is going to keep you farther away from like the full-blown expression of sin. Okay, how about lying? Why do people lie? It, it must go beyond, well, I just don't like to tell the truth. Okay, fear. Yeah. Shame. Envy. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Okay, pride. And again, some of these, maybe you could argue in and of themselves, are sinful, period. So then you've got to go back maybe one more step and kind of analyze. And again, I'm not using this word in a secularized way, but kind of the psychology of it. Like, what's going on in my head? 
that has created this attitude in me toward another person. I'm just kind of thinking through that. I, I think that's helpful so that you can stay, you know, a step or two back from actual sin rather than just stop doing it, don't do it, don't do it. And in fact, if you don't deal with the evil desire um, and you don't help people to understand that there's an evil desire, then I, I guess what, like an example might be if you have a child and you're like, um, don't steal. Okay, don't steal your brother or sister's toys or don't steal from the candy store or whatever it might be. Um, they're hearing you say it's wrong to do it, but they just really feel like doing it. So there's kind of like a disconnect. I know I'm being told I shouldn't do it, but I feel like doing it. It's going to be really hard, unless you just have a really compliant kid, to keep them on the straight and narrow for a long time, unless you help them to address the feeling which the biblical text would refer to as the evil desire. Help them to identify what is it that leads to that. And I, I think we can start to have those conversations with, with children early on. But anyway, that's the downward spiral or the downward staircase that we see in the text. And just I think it's kind of helpful, it's insightful, helps us to understand why we act the way we act. Okay? Any questions about that or comments? Okay, we're going to go to 1 Peter 3. Um, verse 19 says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. But we've got to read the context again, so I'm going to go back to verse 18. I'm going to read through to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So in this passage, then, we have the purposes of God being outlined for us, the redemptive purposes of God being outlined for us, uh, basically, we're told why Jesus suffered. Okay. Why did he suffer? Just to be a spectacle? To do something unusual? No. Uh, he suffered because he had redemption in mind, the purpose of your redemption in mind. So that's the broad truth here of the text. But there's some interesting details in it. They're like, hey, what does he mean by that? Or when did that take place? So we're just going to kind of look at those. Uh, let's just understand, first of all, that when it says he was put to death, that is a reference to his crucifixion. And when it says he was brought to life, that is a reference to um, his resurrection. So we have um, being put to death in the flesh, verse 19, so he's crucified, um, but brought to life, uh, I'm just looking here. 
made alive in the spirit, verse 18, okay? This is the resurrection. So, uh, the the part of this text that becomes sort of the most problematic or ambiguous is in verse... um, 19, when it says, in which, and we need to try to understand what does in which even mean, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So, there are six views that I'm aware of on this text, six different interpretations. And the first three all relate to, or all fall under the broader heading of Hades, uh, the broader idea that this is some sort of a reference to Jesus going to Hades or hell and accomplishing some sort of preaching ministry while he was there. So in in one view, um, some would say that Christ, in between his death, and his resurrection went into hell or Hades and he um, preached judgment against supernatural beings. So under this view then, when it says that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, this view would interpret spirits as evil spirits in prison. In prison, they would interpret as Hades or hell. Okay, that's view number one. View number two is similar, but that the recipients of his proclamations of judgment in hell were disobedient people. Disobedient persons. Okay? And these people, they would understand as being uh, spirits in the sense that, you know, we have a spirit, the spirit's being punished, so they're human spirits. So that would be the second view. The third view is that uh, Christ went, so these are words of judgment. So both of these are like, Basically, Jesus is going down and he's proclaiming that you are damned. The third view is that he went to preach to disobedient persons, but he gave them an opportunity, what's called uh, post-mortem salvation. There are some people that believe this today, that there will be an opportunity after death to accept Christ. And the precedent for that is Christ's descent into hell in between his death and resurrection. He basically goes down and preaches now a gospel to imprisoned uh, human beings who disobeyed him, who didn't accept Christ before their death, and they will have an opportunity to put their faith in Christ. Presumably, there would be a lot of motivation for all of them to put their faith in Christ. Presumably. Okay? But this view doesn't really get into the details of what percentage obey. They just interpret the text that way. 
Um, okay, the fourth view, so we've got to get rid of this heading. This is a little more of an unusual view. But the fourth view teaches that there is some sort of a prison in heaven. And in between his death and his resurrection, Christ went up to heaven into a prison. Um, sorry, I'm going to flip this around. This view teaches that Christ, after his resurrection, went into a place in heaven that is heaven's prison and proclaimed judgment to people that are currently consigned there. That There's this idea, I guess, that God, it's sort of a reaction to the idea that Christ would go into hell. So they're like, well, he went into a prison someplace, so they put the prison in heaven. This is like the only text they have to build that argument on. That he went into heaven and he proclaimed judgment to beings or individuals that God has locked up in some sort of a heavenly prison. So that's obviously a little bit more of an unusual viewpoint. The uh, fifth view is that Christ entered into Noah and preached salvation, but that those who did not listen to Christ preaching through Noah back in the time of the flood, are in prison due to their refusal to listen. Um, I'm going to just take you back to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. So this is under this heading of final warnings. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. So here Paul is um, basically making this proclamation that in his gospel ministry, he viewed himself as in some way being indwelt by Christ and preaching on Christ's behalf or being used by Christ to preach to the early church. So likewise, proponents of this view would say that whenever a preacher is preaching the truth, that Christ is preaching through him. And because in this text we're looking at, there is a reference to the days of Noah, but formerly they did not obey when God's patience waited in the day of Noah. Uh, proponents of this view would say that um, Christ uh, had entered into Noah centuries earlier, preached a message Many disobeyed, refused to listen. And so, therefore, um, this text is just sort of, it's nothing to do with what he's doing in between his death and resurrection. It's hearkening back to something that he did centuries earlier in the Noahic Flood or during the time of the Noahic Flood. However, if you look carefully at the text, just look at the language of this particular text. And you follow the, the sequence of ideas here. Uh, one thing that is noteworthy is that um, it says, 
for Christ also suffered once for sins. So if we were drawing a timeline, that's step number one. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And here it goes. Being put to death in the flesh. That, there's that phrase. And then notice the next phrase. But made alive in the spirit. Now, it's after the phrase, made alive in the spirit, which would seem to be to make the most sense to, to understand it as the resurrection, that it says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So I'm not convinced, in fact, I'm going to make a stronger case in a moment, I'm not convinced that any of these views that I presented to you so far have the time period right within which Christ preached to these spirits in prison, whoever they might be. I would propose to you that in terms of a timeline, that when it says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that whatever that means, I'm going to make a proposal in a moment, but whatever that means happened after the resurrection. After the resurrection. Joy? Yeah, it could it could be it could be a summary statement. Like the that whole passage could be a summary statement. And then the phrase that comes after is going backward and telling us something about the time between his death and resurrection. Um, well, that's a possibility, but then you would have to sort of wrestle with the idea, okay, if, if he's doing some sort of ministry, whatever this refers to, preaching to spirits in prison, some sort of proclamation, some sort of ministry, unless it's just a proclamation of presence or a proclamation of victory, but if he's actually doing some sort of a ministry, which all these views imply, then how does he do it sort of in his body but not with his spirit if his spirit is in heaven? So as I look at this text, I think it's best to understand this passage as a, rec- as a reference to his post-resurrection, pre-ascension ministry. Post-resurrection, pre-ascension ministry, rather than something that took place during the three days in the grave, specifically. And... This kind of makes sense because the gospel message, we would all argue, and we would certainly bear this out at Easter, is actually not complete until there is a resurrection. So if Christ is preaching some sort of a message of judgment after his death but before his resurrection, what is he actually doing that he wasn't doing before his death? The gospel is has not really been moved forward yet until the resurrection happens. I mean, as much as we focus on the cross, and I'm not minimizing the cross, um, Jesus is preaching, 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 preaching. Then there's the cross, but the cross 
in a sense, doesn't yet advance the gospel until it's wedded to the resurrection. In fact, it's almost, in a certain sense, a step backwards because Christ is dead. He's, it's like the question in everyone's mind is, it looks like hell has won. That's how his disciples understood it. But the resurrection makes sense out of the cross because the whole gospel is now completed. So it just seems to me that it would be a bit nonsensical for Christ to proclaim victory, some sort of victory, if, if that's how we're to understand the text, uh, while he was in the grave, but prior to his resurrection. So therefore, like the way I would teach this, I wouldn't teach that Christ descended into hell. You might say, well, doesn't the apostolic creed kind of say something like that? Well, there's debate about what the word hell means too, because hell can mean grave in the sense of Hades or the holding place of the dead, or it can refer in a more specific way to a place of actual spiritual judgment. So you could actually recite the ancient creeds of the church uh, about descended into hell and in your theological mind mean by that he went into the grave but not necessarily be giving a tip of the hat to the belief that he went into the spiritual abode of the dead. So. <laughs> so what do you think in his spirit he was with the Father, and in his body he was in the grave. Parallel to my understanding of what would happen to us if we dropped dead this moment that the body goes into the grave. I don't believe in soul sleep, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the same idea is applied to Christ, that in his spirit he is communing with God, but his body is literally in the grave. And then the resurrection happens, which is the foreshadowing of what we're all looking forward to. Like we know that while we are freed from spiritual death through the blood of Christ, our bodies are still susceptible and will one day go through physical death unless the rapture happens first, right? So um, the spirits in prison then, we haven't really talked much about what that might mean, but I'll give you, uh, we don't have much time here, but I'll give you a little bit. Uh, the spirits in prison could refer back to the fallen angels. If you, if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, and if you interpret the Nephilim or the whatever kind of relationship was going on between what, what are called the sons of God and the daughters of men, if you interpret that passage using the angelic viewpoint, now you, I think you know that I don't, I take the Sethite view, but if you were to understand that event, and you'd be welcome to do that. It's not like you're a heretic if you do. But if you understood that as a reference to fallen angels, uh, or if you understood that as a reference to fallen men, the Sethite view, the Sethite view being that the sons of God refer to the um, ungodly line of Cain and the daughters of men to the godly line of Seth, if you understood that there's some sort of an intermingling there, then uh, the, the idea might be simply that Peter is drawing a parallel between the outcomes of the disobedience that took place in the days of Noah 
that just as in the days of Noah, God pronounced damnation and judgment upon those who disobeyed him and stepped away from his sole opportunity for redemption pictured in an ark, that in the same way, the judgment of God is going to be manifested on all evildoers uh, uh, through the proclamation of Christ that he has conquered death and sin post-resurrection. So when it says he proclaimed to the spirits in prison uh, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, again, he could be drawing a direct parallel between the particular spirits in prison from the time of Noah, or he could be just drawing like a mental connection between the damnation and judgment that God poured out upon them in Genesis chapter 6 and following, and the judgment that God pours out upon people today, or I should say more accurately, between the resurrection and the ascension because of their rejection of him, namely the ones that nailed him to the cross. Um, so the, wi- the, uh, the role of baptism, of course, is... Uh, a little bit difficult as well because it says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, he's drawing an interesting correlation between a boat floating on water and therefore symbolic of salvation in a loose sense and baptism, which... uh, he says, saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. So, again, um, if, and I know this sounds a little slippery to say, but if we had this verse, and only this verse by itself, we might want to consider modifying our doctrine into a doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Um. So another way of saying that is if this was the only baptismal verse in the Bible, then it does seem to say, just at simple reading, that baptism is almost like the mechanism which now saves you. But because we have other, this is where we have to rely upon other passages of the Bible that talk about baptism to maybe add a little more perspective to this passage or soften the teaching, the, the apparent teaching of this passage, the best I can tell you is it just seems that Peter is drawing a parallel between the judgment of God upon evil, which existed at the time of Noah, including the offer of salvation, and he's just drawing a connection, a parallel between how baptism functions in the New Testament church. So with regard to baptism, I, I want to... I want to make a statement that um, I'm a little, I want to I make this statement carefully because unless you have a lot of time to ask me questions, you may underst- misunderstand what I'm saying, but I'm going to try to be clear. Historically, most of our churches teach that baptism is just a symbol. So it's a symbol of something. And we sort of just reduce it just a symbol. So whenever you get around to it, you know, be baptized because it's just a symbol of Christ's um, death, burial, and resurrection. I, I get that, like it's a reaction to 
the theology that says you're regenerated through your baptism. But I actually think that we've, we've allowed the pendulum to swing a little too far when it comes to understanding of baptism. To borrow the title of Stan Fowler's book, one of the professors at Heritage Seminary, uh, I would feel comfortable saying baptism is more than a symbol. While it is not the mechanism or the means by which God regenerates a person, in New Testament thought, it appears that it is so closely tied to the moment of salvation that there are a couple passages in the Bible, even one in Acts, that almost seems to blend them together because it's so closely tied. The eunuch believes and he's baptized. You repent and you're baptized. 3,000 believed and they were baptized. It's so closely wedded to it that it's kind of like people today that say, well, I'm now married because I took my vows. Well, not really. I mean, there's no such thing as wedding vows in the Bible. Vows are not required to seal a covenant. But because the vows, in our culture at least, are so closely tied to the sealing of a covenant, you can seal a covenant in other ways, tying of hands, whatever you want, but because vows are so closely tied to a covenant, we often sort of blend the two together. And we say, you know, you need to stay true to your vows because we just imagine or picture in our mind vows, just, they're just part of a Western wedding. That's just the way it works. And so in the same way, the New Testament seems to suggest that there's really no such thing. I mean, I'm sure there were exceptions, but the New Testament seems to present baptism as so closely wedded to salvation that there's really no such thing in the New Testament church's mindset as an unbaptized Christian. just seems kind of like an oxymoron to them. Like you profess, you don't wait six months or a year until you take three baptismal classes. You you repent and you are baptized. So while it's a bit of an argument from silence um, in that we don't know if people waited to be baptized, we do know that in the baptismal texts, they're tied to people who just believed. If baptism, however, is the mechanism whereby God saves people, then Jesus was lying to the thief on the cross. Because the thief on the cross didn't have an opportunity to get into a baptismal tank. So um, I don't want you to go out here and say Aaron teaches baptismal regeneration. I don't. Like I don't. Meaning I don't think baptism is the means of spiritual regeneration. But I think it is so closely tied to, to salvation. Think of it this way. It is the means by which one initially and for the first time declares saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's the means. It's not like in our churches, it's like, I'm going to tell you I'm a believer first, and then I'm going to get baptized. When you tell someone you're a believer, in a sense, you're like replacing baptism with a verbal profession to another person. But in the New Testament, the idea seems to be when a person believes in their heart and professes with their mouth that Jesus is God, they then proclaim that to the believing community through baptism. And so you can imagine that in some texts they're, they're so, cl- because those two actions are like literally back to back, there seems at times to be a blending of the two.
But that is not to say then that baptism is the means. It's just, another way of putting it is baptism is part and parcel of conversion in that it is the means of telling people I'm now following Jesus Christ. Um, So we're not saying that people have to be baptized to get to heaven. But we kind of need to keep pushing this idea. It is the means of professing it. It is the means. And therefore, uh, I mean, I don't have a, I'm not like a stickler. I'm not suggesting that if you teach a baptismal class, you're sinning or something like that. Or there's not obviously some wisdom behind asking a person questions to make sure that their faith is genuine. But I don't teach baptismal classes, and I don't teach them on purpose because I don't want to, for people to confuse proclamation of faith for the first time, which I think baptism serves to do, with somehow having now been discipled or having arrived. And it, I, I have people tell me all the time, I'm not ready to be baptized. I don't even know what that means. As Jesus your Lord? Yeah, then you're ready. <laughs> um, but I think we, we've sort of miscommunicated that. So people think, oh, I've got to sort of get over my addictions and I've got to learn some scriptures and I've got to memorize the book of John and I've got to go to church 15 times. And then, you know, maybe it's appropriate for me to tell people I'm a Christian. But it's not, like I get it, but that's not how baptism worked in the New Testament. You're saved, you're baptized, period. So we don't, we don't, um, we don't try to like, make people jump over a bunch of hoops or hurdles to qualify. It's like, can you profess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes, get in the tank. And then we'll start the discipleship process afterwards. Right. Does somebody else other than you and God have to be involved in that? Does, where do you get this proclamation idea? Is that substantiated by Scripture? Uh, when you say me and God, do you mean like me? Okay. Why does it have to be that proclamation to, I understand, to support and all that sort of thing? But is it not an individual personal matter between you and your maker? Well, it is on a certain level, but it's, a, it's by definition a public declaration. It doesn't say, like, public doesn't mean there has to be 15 people present. Public doesn't mean there has to be a, an ordained pastor present. Um, I mean, the Bible doesn't add all that to it. But it is, it's an initiatory right, and initiatory rights are always witnessed. So it's not like you just, well, I have scripture in the sense of I have precedent. Like when the Ethiopian eunuch was, finally understood the prophecies of Isaiah as gospel, he was taken down into the river and baptized. So it's a public declaration. And, I mean, even while Jesus' baptism serves a different purpose, the baptism of the Essenes, the baptism of John the Baptist, were always in public places. So it's not like you would just go into the shower or fill up the bathtub and immerse yourself. There was always a public declaration. Because it is a declaration. It is a declaration to God, but it's also a declaration to man. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're asking me, like, is there a Bible verse that says it has to be in public? No. But if you look at the examples of baptism, they're in public places. 
They're doing them in public. There's not like some guy baptizing himself in a room by himself. Well, there would have to be at least one. Yes. Yeah, it would be, I suppose, if that's who's present. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody else is watching Philip and the eunuch. Who knows? Pardon me? Yeah, that's true. I mean, chances are there were others, but I mean, I don't, I don't have a photographic evidence, so how do we know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I'm not, this, sometimes it can open a can of worms in terms of order in the church, so there's some spin-off considerations, but I don't have to do all the baptizing here. I mean, typically I do, but there's nothing in the Bible that says it can only be done by a pastor. I know of churches that encourage parents to baptize their own children. They baptize them in the church or in the river or wherever. Um, I mean, you want there to be some order to it. I mean, you, I guess, you, I mean, you, and I'm just thinking, for example, that uh, a parent may be less discriminant in certain situations to ask the right questions to ensure that the person is a believer, for example. And when things are at an arm's length, you may get a little little different read on a person. Like I, I've had parents bring their kids to me in my office and say, tell Pastor Aaron all about your faith because they want their kid to be baptized. And um, it becomes very clear to me and to the chagrin of the parent, very clear to the parent, the child does not yet understand the gospel. But maybe because I'm approaching it a little more objectively and I'm at an arm's length relationship, I can maybe ask those kinds of questions that a parent may may, may may make some more assumptions. Other times, if it's a younger person, they clam up in front of me, but they give a greater they give greater clarity of profession to their parent, like if it's a younger person. So you just kind of got to work through those kinds of situations. Sorry, Jack, I just realized we're quite a bit over time. So I'm just going to make one final comment, and then I'll take, I'll take your comment after class. Real quick, I'm just going to read what I wrote. So uh, third, what's the content of the proclamation? The word here is caruso, which means to proclaim or announce. It is not the word evangelizo, which means to proclaim good news. Um, this was not a message then of a second chance for salvation after death. So normally when you're preaching gospel as an opportunity, you would use the equivalent of evangelism, that word. Uh, This was not a message of salvation to spirits in prison, but it was a message of condemnation through Christ's victory in all likelihood. So while the content of Christ's proclamation is not explicitly given, there's no reason to conclude as some have, that after our deaths, Christ comes to us and gives us a second chance to repent prior to heaven or hell. Our chances for salvation end when death comes knocking. I have some other material on baptism and whatnot, but um, I'll just leave it there and uh, bid you a fond farewell. Thanks for coming out to this course. And um, you know we can continue to obviously dialogue individually about difficult passages, but I hope that this course has served to clarify some of them for you and also increase your skill to study the Bible and understand it for yourself. Okay?